Um, I didn't know I was going to be giving a formal presentation until yesterday. Uh, somewhere there was a communications failure, and uh, I was the last one to know. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm not as prepared as I, I feel like I should be. Um, uh, I've been thinking quickly. Um, uh, there, there is, in the field of uh, traditional kinds of writings from religions, there's one particular kind of writing called apologetics. It, uh, and it doesn't mean you're saying you're sorry. Uh, but the Greek word apologia means defense. So uh, early Christians, for example, uh, had, had to write things to explain what they were doing uh, to uh, a Roman or a pagan audience uh, and, and to answer, respond to charges against them. And this is called that style of writing. Uh, you, they listed the early church fathers did it, Justin Martyr and all. It's called apologetics. So this is what this is. Of course, when you call it communications, uh, it's down into a modern uh, uh, context. Um, and so now what we have to do is apologetics uh, concerning Srila Prabhupada. And uh, one of the challenges is that we have to understand Srila Prabhupada. And uh, Prabhupada, where he is as we say in America, where he's coming from is way above our head. <laughs> it's like a... Uh, so that, all, that presents a, a challenge. The other thing that, that I... Uh, and so uh, I once gave a series of lectures called uh, The Hermeneutics of Srila Prabhupada. That is to say, what were Prabhupada's own approach to understanding scripture? Hermeneutics is the... The, the science of, originally the science of how do you go, what are the rules for understanding or interpreting uh, scripture. But also we need another kind of hermeneutics, what are the rules of the way for understanding Srila Prabhupada. Not just for the public, but for the devotees, first of all. Uh, and one of the things that, that, that prompted this uh, the book I just put out, uh, The Position of Srila Prabhupada, was the realization that in the very near future uh, our movement will come to a time where there will be no people around who had direct experience of Srila Prabhupada. And when this happens uh, to religions, it's a critical time. Uh, scholars say that the Gospels, the more Christian Gospels, did not begin to get written down until the original witnesses were getting old. And people said, you know those stories you keep telling about Jesus, you better write them down. <laughs> so uh, that's how it, 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 it came about. So, that, uh, um, so this, because it's, it's a big time, it'll be a critical time. And uh, the GBC, uh, with whatever wisdom it has, decided to repair, prepare for that thing. That, that kind of event. And uh, this is a particular uh, uh, case where it would be really important. Uh, so, uh, now, 
Well, uh, I, I want to point out that there's a, a late professor, A.K. Ramanujan, a professor of uh, Hinduism and Sanskrit at the University of Chicago. Obviously, you can see by his name, he came from a Vaishnava family originally, Ramanujan. Um, and he, he made a very interesting mark about, uh, remark about, uh, about uh, Indian thinking. And he said, said how it's, it's different from Western uh, way of thinking. And I don't know if these are his exact terms because I don't, didn't have time to look them up. But he said that uh, Indian thinking is context specific. Whereas Western thinking tends to be context invariant, I think those maybe those are the terms he used, but it's something to that uh, to, to that expect. And that's very important to remember about dealing with Srila Prabhupada. Uh, we want to see a, 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 we want to see something that any statement you make just applies across the board universally everywhere. Uh, uh, but. Sometimes with Prabhupada, it seems like he contradicts himself all the time because he's in one context saying one thing and another context is another thing. And it's just a different style of, uh, of, of doing things. And uh, with, uh, so with Prabhupada, especially with his conversations, uh, you really have to take context into account. Uh, and so this is just for us now. I mean, you, this is not what you're going to tell reporters, but it's for, for our own understanding. You really have to take the context into account. Uh, and and uh, the, that context, of course, one thing is who he's talking to. I mean, Prabhupada sometimes like to have fun with reporters. He liked to challenge them. He, 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 liked, to, uh, he liked to say something that, that would get a reaction from them. Almost like he liked to tease them. I've seen this. Sometimes he did like that. Provoked it, yeah. He was provocative uh, uh, sometimes. But the other thing is that now I want to tell you a few things. When I was there with Srila Prabhupada, and I would see some interaction take place with academics or with reporters, and then look, later on I, I saw an account of it or a transcript of it, and it didn't convey but a little slice of what was actually happening. So, so the, 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 the exact audio recording of a conversation with Prabhupada, you only get a piece of what happens. Uh, because, well, first of all, there's body language. Uh, on, a, on an audio recording, uh, you get a little more information from an audio recording because the expression and tone of voice is there. You can tell whether Prabhupada is being funny or not just by the way he's speaking. Or if you're reading the transcript, you've lost all the inflections that come in the spoken language. And the spoken language and the written language are two different languages. So when the, when the spoken language gets written down, uh, you've, missed, you've missed some of the context. 
And then when there's a room and there's people there, uh, there's an atmosphere, uh, then there's body language and expressions. There are things going on on the side that maybe we don't see, uh, but are there. There's, uh, if Prabhupada's talking with somebody else, there's a very great deal of communication taking place uh, that, that's nonverbal. Uh, that people are responding to sometimes, and we don't see that. So that's really important to take context and account, and the context, in a way, is gone. Even if you have a video recording, that's also just a slice of the action. Uh, you you have to you have to have to be there. Uh, and then another thing about the context is that. Prabhupada's own personal context, what he was aware of, what he was looking at, that's what's above most of our pay grade to know. He would see things about people uh, that, uh, that are not apparent to everybody else. And that's just not a pious statement, that's just a statement of fact, because I saw it. Uh, one time, uh, uh, when, uh, when Prabhupada visited Philadelphia in 1975, a devotee brought his parents and sat to meet with Srila Prabhupada. And the Prabhupada was being very nice to the parents and you know, kind of congratulating them. And then he, he about having a son who's a devotee. And he mentions that to the mother that the son inherits the qualities of the mother uh, and so since your son is a devotee you must be a very good person and then he turned to the father he said but you sir are a fool <laughs> that's what he said you sir are a fool <laughs> and everybody laughed I mean the, the way Prabhupada said it everyone just burst into laughing including the father <laughs> But as we found out later, that father, uh, I, I, I found out, well, I'll tell you how I found out. Uh, there, there was an anti-cult organization at the time called the American Family Foundation, and there was a, a devotee in our congregation who became a spy for me and actually joined that foundation. This is my spy, and he was sending me back reports. I even, I even sent them to the GBC from a buck to X. I called him, you know, who was sending me the reports of this fellow back. And, uh, and he found out that he found out a list of members of the American Family Foundation and that these were the, this devotee's father. And I tipped the devotee off because he thought his parents were acting weird. He was down in Washington and the family lived in Philadelphia. He came back and while his parents were away, he searched the house and he found a, converse, he found a, a correspondence between his father and Ted Patrick, the famous deprogrammer. And he even recounted his meeting with Srila Prabhupada. Yeah. So Prabhupada, when he looked at that, <laughs> had some perception of where he was really coming from. And the, the, the boy, by the way, managed to avoid becoming deprogrammed. That, that's another story. So uh, Prabhupada, and I want to tell another story, 
Bob Prabhupada's dealing with a reporter. Well, I was personally present. Uh, he, he, uh, this was in New York airport. Prabhupada had come uh, and uh, given a press conference. And uh, here's a typical thing that happens. Uh, why didn't you come to the West, they said. We had did a Guru Puja, you know, a whole full-on thing that we used to do in the airport. You could do things like that in the airport. Uh, and then he had a press conference, and he said, uh, one report, why did you come to the West? And Prabhupada said, I have come to give you a brain. <laughs> he explained that, he explained, uh, the human society has a head, arms, belly, and leg. And he said, but your society is headless. He said, your society, you have need a brain. It's very, you know, what he's saying is very, it's funny, but very profound. And then later on he said, in your society, everyone is a shudra and there are a few vaishas. Another, we haven't even seen real kshatriyas and real brahmanas. Even though we have elected, you know, we have armies and government and scholars, but anyway. So anyway, after after that, uh, we are walking down the corridor. The thing was over down the concourse, and we see coming at us uh, some people that were late for the press conference. There was a reporter, and there was behind him a cameraman running, kind of trying, because they were late, and the cameraman. The, the cords were swinging back and forth, you know. The cameras in those days were quite bulky compared to today. And anyway, I was walking behind Srila Prabhupada about three or four steps, uh, and the reporters stood up in front of him, and Prabhupada stopped, and by the time I stopped, I was standing right next to Srila Prabhupada. So I caught what was going on. So the, they're kind of out of breath, and the, the guy's disentangling himself from the cords, and the, the reporter who's going to be on the air is making sure his hair is nice, and they're getting all set up. And the, the <laughs> so they're sort of still a little bit out of breath. The reporter takes the microphone, puts it in Prabhupada's face, and says, how does your group differ from other Buddhists? <laughs> And then Prabhupada was so cool, he looked at him and he said, we have nothing to do with this Hinduism or Buddhism. We are speaking the truth and if you are truthful, you will accept it. And the reporter had his next mouth open for the next question and it just stayed open. <laughs> he didn't know what to say. <laughs> And so I thought about this a lot, what happened. And of course, what Prabhupada, and at first I thought, my God, if that were me, I'd try, well, actually, we're a sect of Hinduism, you know. But what Prabhupada did was destroy the mental platform on which the question was asked. And this is what he does a lot. He does it a lot. And he spoke to that reporter. Not I, I, not I am some uh, important person being interviewed by a reporter. I'm thinking of the audience this is going out to, you know, like that. What he did, he talked to that human being who is a conditioned soul in need of something. That's what he did. And so many times for Prabhupada, 
that's the context. That's the context. And, and so he just did, didn't, he dealt with the spirit soul. And that's very hard sometimes for us to see uh, of, uh, of what's going on. And sometimes, uh, I'll tell another one, this again wasn't with a reporter, this was with an academic, a guy I brought to see, Shula Prabhupada, time he came in 75 to Philadelphia. That was only a very interesting time because before he had been in Chicago, and a woman recorded and asked him about the position of women, and this is where he was being challenged, and finally he quoted something that his professor Urquhart had taught at, at Scottish Church's uh, college about cranial capacity of, of women in it and so on. Uh, and uh, that was in the newspaper, so when he came to Philadelphia, there was a woman reporter who brought it up again. So this was, well, that was one of the things that was, uh, uh, that was happening. So, uh, but the, I, I, so I brought, I brought a, a professor in my, I was a, still a graduate student in a religion department, and, and uh, a Professor Babuti Yadav, uh, who taught Hinduism, wanted to meet Srila Prabhupada. And so he came with two of my fellow graduate students to see Srila Prabhupada. And uh, so Dr. Yadav sat down, uh, Prabhupada, he kind of did like this. Uh, and uh, this is the, the it's in, in the Prabhupada Lila Rito, although they changed his name to Patel, but it's in there, it comes from my account of it. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, Prabhupada said, What do you teach? And he said, uh, Hinduism. And Prabhupada said, Oh, what is uh, Hinduism? And Yadav says, I don't know. I don't know what is Hinduism. You tell me. And Prabhupada says, what? You don't know what is Hinduism? You are teaching and you do not know? This is our Bhakti Swarup Damodar. He's also a PhD. Let's ask his opinion of this. <laughs> Swarup Gavadar says on cue, Cheater Srila Prabhupada. That is called cheating. <laughs> You're teaching and don't know. Prabhupada said, oh, so then, then, it, then it got really, really heavy, you know. I mean, Prabhupada was just devastating to him and just smashing him. Uh, and then uh, Yadav says, uh, at one point, he admitted he was a cheater. He admitted he was a cheater. And, and, and then says, but I'm an honest cheater. <laughs> and then this is what Prabhupada said, you say you are honest, but the judgment of a cheater cannot be accepted. He didn't give him a break. <laughs> and at one point, Yadav got a little angry, you know, and, 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 and Brahmananda came up and said, you better leave before you get offensive, you know. And, and it was it was so heavy, and I'm thinking, my God, there's a guy in my religion department. How am I going to deal with this? He <laughs> liked Prabhupada's nectar of devotion, and the graduate students are looking at me. You know what's going on? You know? Uh, anyway, I don't want to do 
you can read the whole episode as I remembered it. So, probably. so Yadav eventually left and I stayed and Prabhupada was furious. He, he had veins in his forehead. His hands were shaking. And the GPC were trying to calm him back. Here, probably is this nice article about Gita Nagari, you know? And some people are giving me dirty looks. <laughs> the next morning, I'm driving him on the morning walk, and, and, and uh, I'd been awake all night trying to compose an apology, you know, for bringing him down on the seat, Prabhupada. And uh, so I said something, you know, I'm sorry I brought that person here. I didn't know he was, I probably used the word demon as we accustomed to those I didn't realize that. And Prabhupada kind of looked surprised. He said, oh, that's all right. He said, at least he was chastised. <laughs> so, so, so then the, the and it, it was really funny. I mean, at one, one, one point he said, he asked Prabhupada, uh, Prabhupada mentioned Sharanambraja. And Prabhupada said, uh, I, I, what is the meaning of Sharanam? And Prabhupada said, uh, uh, he said, oh, uh, where is the dictionary? Uh, what is the meaning of surrender? No, he says, no, I want the Sanskrit etymological meaning of Sharanam. And Prabhupada looked at him and said, you don't want it. You want a Sanskrit teacher? So <laughs> we, I cannot waste my time like this. You know, I mean, just always like that all the way. This is the the Buddha Yada. Yeah. So, so it, 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 anyway, then I, I could hardly look at Yada for we encounter each other in the religion department, and, and and he was going around to the Indian community there and telling him, you know, how Prabhupada was so mean to him and nasty to him. And then, about three or four years later on, I encountered Yadav Yadav in the religion department. And he, sa he says to me, you know, he says, I'm, because, because he, he, he was a Pustimarga, he was born and raised in a Vaishnava family, the Pustimarga Vaishnava family, Balabhacharya. So he was born Vaishnava. But you know, mostly in the religion department then he was like more into Buddhism and smoked cigarettes and all those things like that. And, uh, and he said, actually it took me a number of years, but what your spiritual master did me was very good. And now I'm practicing Vaishnavism again. Well, that, that's, that's what he said. In fact, actually this was after the Prabhupada was written, so didn't, that, that part didn't get in there because I didn't even know the conclusion. So I just want, I just want to say this, that, that, that these things are happening. And Prabhupada is dealing with the person in, in a way that, that is on a level that to him is more important than, than it, it, it is to us. Um, uh, this, this, this reporter that uh, was there the, from the Philadelphia Inquiry. She had come to the temple early. She was doing a magazine article and she had immediately started asking Prabhupada questions about attitude toward uh, uh, blacks, attitude toward women and stuff like that. The day after Rathiatra, she's having another talk with Srila Prabhupada. Uh, and uh, uh, oh, and she had said to Srila Prabhupada before, you know, these this is the kind of thing. 
the devotees say that you are very humble. But I, I see that they have picked you up from the airport in a Cadillac limousine. And those days limousines are pretty rare. And we were very, I was very proud that we were able to hire a limousine to bring people back. So, if you're very humble, why are you riding home in a Cadillac? Why are you riding in a Cadillac limousine? And this is what Prabhupada said. He said, this spiritual master is to be treated on an equal level with God. Now, God rides in a golden chariot. I think Prabhupada said this other times too, when confirmed with say, God rides in a golden chariot. So this Cadillac limousine was not actually enough. They should have given me a golden chariot, golden car. So then after, the day after Rathiatra, she says to him, during the Ratha, that parade yesterday, some devotees told me that flying above the chariot were some invisible beings uh, who were throwing down flowers on the parade and that you could see them but we couldn't. Is that true? <laughs> and I'm thinking, my God, who taught that reporter? <laughs> who is an idiot that said that? <laughs> and, and, and so she said, so uh, that, that you could see them, but we, we, I couldn't, but we couldn't. We couldn't. Is that true? Prabhupada's eyes got big. And he said, yes. <laughs> he said, you can't see them because you're envious of the spiritual master. That's what he said. That's what he said. Uh, and I am sure that was good for that woman. And it was impossible to know, some, there were some other people who interviewed Srila Prabhupada whose conversation is reprinted in our books. She was uh, this to me, a kind of airheaded, new-agey lady who came with her friend to interview Prabhupada for some new-age magazine. I think it's reprinted in the Science of Self-Realization or something, a conversation. And she bought some japa beads in the temple. She wore them around the neck. She, her neck, Prabhupada saw those beads. Oh, you have those beads, you know? And he was just really, really sweet to her all the way down. And I thought, just because she has the beads, <laughs> but he just, I mean, she asked questions, and it was a whole different relationship uh, uh, with, 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 uh, with, with this woman. Uh, so, so this, what's going on is, is, uh, is those kind of things. By the way, the, the thing that really I found very, very interesting he had given this lady reporter a hard time. He had talked to her about the women of freedom and that uh, uh, so you want to enjoy like a man, you get pregnant, now you have, now you have uh, the choice. Either you can take shelter of the government or you can kill your own baby. That's your position. You can take shelter of the government and become dependent on the government or you can kill your own child. Is that a good choice? And the woman said something like, well, at least it's her choice. And Prabhupada said, almost under his breath, 
But those who were sitting right close to Gahir says, that is 32 ounces. <laughs> 32 ounces, a small brain. That was got in trouble in, 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 in Chicago. He said just under his breath, you know, almost. It's 32 ounces. So funny. So that's virtual. Anyway, she left, and Vishaka was there. Uh, my god sister, uh, and so she said, she, she, you know, disturbed by this idea about women having small brains. So she took the opportunity and she said to Srila Prabhupada, is it true, Prabhupada, that in our movement the women are less intelligent than the men? And Prabhupada said, no, he says, when you become a devotee, your brain grows. <laughs> And I, I, you know, I just realized the whole thing was kind of like, I don't know, you know, it's like, <laughs> what he's doing is not what you think he's doing. <laughs> That's what he said to Vishaka. <laughs> so this is just, just to give you some idea that, that, that we, we, when these statements come out, for ourselves, it seems to me that there needs to be a kind of uh, another way of looking at these conversations. Uh, not just reading them, first of all, at least listening to the audio tapes that we have, and, and trying to, to understand uh, Prabhupada and what is going on uh, in, in, in this connection in, in context. Because it's always about the individual, and it's about their spiritual welfare. And I don't think he cares so much about, about whatever else may be uh, may be made of it. Uh, another thing that uh, I, I think that uh, one has to understand uh, that a lot of the things that Prabhupada says that are controversial are ultimately related to the, the social teachings of Vaishnavism, particularly Varnashram Dharma, or Daivi Varnashram Dharma. But when Prabhupada says Daivi Varnashram Dharma, it means the Varnashram Dharma that is given by God. And by Daivi Varnashram Dharma, uh, it means very specifically Varnashram Dharma in which is based solely on guna and karma, not on janma, not on birth. That's what he means by it. So actually, it's a very careful definition. Uh, and, and, and one of his major missions in life is to re-establish Varnashram Dharma. And so in Varnashram Dharma, even, first of all, if it's, if it's not hereditary, that's first of all radical, in some ways very radical. Uh, uh, and Prabhupada was this mixture of being extremely conservative, further right that you can never imagine. I mean, if he believed in kings, I asked him once, has, 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 problem, has Krishna created the perfect form of government? And he said, yes, Kshatriyas. That's what he said. And we haven't even seen the old Kshatriyas. But that's what he said. So he, he actually believes in monarchy. You can take it that way. But that's very conservative. On the, on the other hand, he is completely liberal. 
that everyone can attain the highest goal. And, uh, he did things. When Allen Ginsberg said, I, I think the Swami is very conservative, here he was at that time going on stage with the most famous openly gay man in America and having him lead the Kirtans. And Prabhupada said, conservative? He was just imagining what his godbrothers were thinking. So it's, it, I mean, when we're dealing with Srila Prabhupada, we are really uh, uh, have to be very alert to uh, some of these things uh, and, and understanding Srila Prabhupada. And therefore, it's, it's a really good idea to have people who were there for some of these things and could know what was actually going on uh, and get a better idea of the context, uh, both for us and our point of view from Srila Prabhupada's point of view. Thank you. between generalization and 
universals, and I think this kind of gets back to A.K. Ramanujan's point about context-specific and context-invariance. Uh, but I think we want to keep this in mind. We see Srila Prabhupada um, using quite a number of terms of classification, and that's what I'm going to elaborate in, in this chart. And I think a broader point to all of this is that there is a difference between generalization and universals. But I would, I would add a point to what Ramanujan is saying, and that is that Srila Prabhupada is also speaking about universals, but he's speaking on a higher level of universality, you might say, namely that of uh, the eternal identity of the spirit soul. Uh, and I think it helps us to understand what Srila Prabhupada's um, teaching is about to keep in mind the notion of adhikar. And this comes from Wilhelm Haupfass, <laughs> who wrote uh, so many years ago a, an essay on this topic, how especially in what we call Brahminical culture, there's uh, a very great emphasis on the notion of adhikar, qualification or right or authorization or authority. And I think we see this a lot in Srila Prabhupada's speaking, and it's often to make the point that this person is not qualified. This person does not have adhikar. Uh, the professor of Hinduism who doesn't know what Hinduism is obviously uh, does not have the appropriate adhikar for his activity. And I would make this point that um, in a sense Srila Prabhupada's overall preaching aim is to declassify uh, and then to well, we can say to reclassify everyone or uh, bring them beyond classification to uh, the essential, the, the real identity, which is that of eternal servant Krishna. Uh, the problem, uh, the, why we're discussing this today, is that people's uh, perception and People have perception and resentment about the initial classifications, what I'm uh, calling purva paksha, in a sense, as you'll see in a minute. When they see these and they don't see the bigger picture that Shiva Prabhupada is talking about, when they don't see the bigger story that Shiva Prabhupada is telling, then uh, this is where the problem comes. So I think that understanding this uh, broader perspective of how Shiva Prabhupada is classifying will help us in communication uh, and particularly a communication with an ethos of dialogue. All right, here we go with my, my chart. I kind of like charts, forgive me if you don't like charts. Uh, these. All, all the 
All, all that I've done in this could certainly be fine-tuned, expanded, adjusted, uh, perhaps in major ways, perhaps minor ways. So I, I've, I've created uh, three columns here, what I'm calling the negatively valenced or conditioned existence column. Valenced means uh, marked or having, how, how would you define valence? Having a value. Of having a value, yeah, so negatively valued. Uh, and then on the right is positively valenced or valued, uh, spiritually progressive, and in the middle, transitional, ambiguously or neutrally or favorably situated can be sort of going in one direction or the other. And I've, I've somewhat arbitrarily, um, in terms of order and also inclusion, have a whole, whole bunch of stuff here. I'll just do this very quickly, you'll see where I'm going, and we can go through these um, a little quickly. First, Srila Prabhupada gets on the case of bogus gurus, right? Uh, but what is the context of talking about bogus gurus? He wants us to understand there's uh, the opposite of that, the Vaishnava gurus, the Vaishnava acharyas. In between, these are the followers of bogus gurus, uh, or um, I've thrown in also the Sampradayas as a whole. And then we have Shastric categories, and by the way, I've, I've called this whole thing Prabhupada's classificatory scheme. You may say, well, Prabhupada is, you know, taking from Shastra. Well, yes, but the point is, he is deciding uh, which Shastra, Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavatam, and so on, and it is Srila Prabhupada who is doing this presenting, who is uh, uh, pointing out these categories. So we're all, all familiar with Bhagavad Gita, we have uh, the Dushkritinas and Sukritinas, and uh, there are four uh, types of each of these, uh, the Dushkritinas, the impious persons, Buddha, Naradama, and by the way, I think uh, the purport, uh, Shiva Prabhupada's purport to this verse, 7, 15, or 14, 15, 15, is one of his longest purports in Bhagavad Gita. Uh, he really wants us to understand that there are a lot of these Buddhas and Naradamas and Mayaya Aparitajanas and Asuras around. Uh, and then we have on the other side uh, the Arta Jigyasu, Arta Arti, uh, and Gyanas. And obviously they're uh, Sukritina, they're pious persons. And I put into the same box uh, the Mahatma, the Sadhu, and the Bhakta, and the Bhagavata or Mahabhagavata, which of course there are subcategories. Uh, given in Bhagavatam. And then we have such term as Sadhana Siddha, uh, and one might elaborate there as well. 
In between, Prabhupada speaks of the karmis, the jnanis, and the yogis. When I first came to the temple, I think it was the second day I was there, one bhakta was preaching to me, and he was telling me all about the kamis, the kamis, the kamis, the kamis. <laughs> this was in German. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, so this Hare Krishna, they're really against communists. <laughs>
in a sense, expressing in a similar way. And on the positive side, Śrīla Prabhupāda would speak of these devotee, boys and girls from America and Europe, usually it was America and Europe, Europe and America. And uh, the impression I have from the way he would speak of them, he would often refer to them when in India, pointing to his American disciples, is he was saying, in effect, they are no longer Mecha, Yavana, etc., etc. Now they are devotees. And so he's emphasizing that point. And then you have the rascals, the atheists, the Mayavadis, the impersonalists, and so on. Um, and interestingly, I would put Shankaracharya in the middle ground <laughs> because Prabhupada would say he is not at fault. <clears throat> and then on, on the right, the positive, you have devotee, pure devotee, personalists, uh, bona fide religious leaders, and of course Prabhupada would refer to Lord Jesus Christ. I think he would go into this And then we have, um, Prabhupada usually didn't use the word Gnosticus, to my knowledge, the Buddhists, the Jains, classical materialists, all uh, together with mental speculators. In the middle, there would be supportive and appreciative uh, learned people, scholars, scientists, musicians, business people, and so on. And then on the right, there were devotee scholars scientists and so on. Finally, to make all of this quasi-complete, I thought, to also include animals. Uh, and then we have Srila Prabhupada speaking untiringly about the human form of life as opportunity uh, to become uh, perfected. And then on the right, we have liberated stories of liberated animals and, very importantly, cows. All right, um, what to make of all this? Uh, I think this is a means of understanding our conditioned providence is speaking about these as a means of understanding our conditioned predicament in this world. Uh, he is using these designations as a kind of starting point from which Srila Prabhupada is inviting and expecting individuals to rise up to the challenge of spiritual life uh, and uh, in, in that way become reclassified, so to say, through purification. Uh, this functions as a kind of mapping process so that uh, it, it, it is all-encompassing Everyone is somewhere on the map. And, uh, and therefore, it's actually inclusive because everyone has the opportunity, every living entity has the opportunity to reach perfection. Okay. Um, so again, behind all this classification seems to me is, is very much the idea of Adhikar and one uh, example of this I think is in the comments Srila Prabhupada would say about 
the moon landing, as he would watch in 1969, that supposedly uh, there was uh, a moon landing happening in real time, uh, probably would say different things. And uh, his sort of final comment was, even if they went to the moon, they could not stay there. So what is behind that statement? It's uh, the point about Adhikar. They do not have the qualification to go to the moon. And then when Shiva Prabhupada is speaking about leaders, it's about qualification and, and so on. So, related to this uh, idea of Adhikar then, the pure Vaishnava, is understood to be beyond all qualification and seeing anyone beyond or classification and uh, seeing anyone beyond classification. And then again and again and again and again, Srila Prabhupada is saying, by the association of a pure devotee, everyone can become uplifted. Of course, here is referring to the Bhagavatam verse, Kirata Hunandra Purinda Bhukashana, and so on, from second canto. So, uh, yeah, everyone can potentially become uh, to the highest level of Adhikara, which is pure devotee, and indeed to become Guru. Well, that's a bit controversial, even within our society. Negative classifications are often lokika, uh, which means of this world, as opposed to alokika. Uh, they're determined by local cultural perceptions, and I think uh, it's a subject for discussion, to what extent we consider Srila Prabhupada in his context of when he grew up, where he grew up. Um, some conclusions. Uh, to understand the uh, overall shape of Prabhupada's classificatory scheme, and most importantly, his purpose behind it, is an essential beginning to dealing with his controversial statements. So, uh, and uh, Alfred, Alfred North Whitehead yeah. uh, spoke of the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, which is otherwise known as the reification fallacy. Uh, I think, arguably, when uh, people see read, uh, when they see a statement uh, spoken by Srila Prabhupada and they see this as, as problematic, what's really happening is they're missing the point and as such they are participating in or they, they are understanding through a fallacy of reasoning and that's the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Um, and then history. I think it, uh, all of this points to the need for some careful historical study of Shiva Prabhupada's 
life and uh, teaching, to see a progression of how Srila Prabhupada spoke on these different uh, points, and this brings in, of course, the subject of context. All of this, I think, calls attention to the need for an ongoing uh, a perpetuation of the commentarial tradition of which, like it or not, we are a part of. Um, commenting on the comments, right? Commenting on the comments. Um, it's not to be found in the database, but uh, Bhakti Vaibhava Swami says that Srila Prabhupada said that one day devotees will write commentaries on my commentaries. Well, we're already doing that. Actually, we're doing that every day when we give a Bhagavatam class. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was once with Prabhupada talking to a Columbia graduate student. He said, you see all these books? Uh, you read those books and then you write books about these books. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> <laughs> so this calls attention to uh, this website, Tough Ones, DDT Tough Ones, uh, which I think is a start uh, of you know, the idea. I was commissioned to write one of these articles. I think there are seven altogether, and it seems to have fizzled out after that. But, um, maybe it needs some, some reworking or whatever. And then all of this, in the end, I think, uh, should be toward creating space for dialogue, where what we want to do with the public is uh, not only that they listen to us, but we allow ourselves to listen to them, to listen to their concerns, and then to actually respond to their concerns, not to speak past them, but to speak with them. I was going to say a few words. Um, difficult acts to follow. These thoughtful and insightful uh, presentations. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for nothing because it's a difficult act to follow. <laughs> so thank you very much for that. Um, um, I suppose uh, where we could start with is um, our Srila Prabhupada's comments, all absolute truth. Does every word you say reflect the absolute truth? Um, and that's a difficulty we've had um, over the years in ISKCON. Uh, Makunda Goswami was very upset when uh, Prabhupada's conversations were published. He thought, we thought Prabhupada really would not like his conversations to be published. He was quite convinced of that. Um, yet the publishers thought that all of Prabhupada's words are the truth, so therefore everything has to be published. And there's two very, very different opinions. You would look at Mukunda Goswami as one of the very first devotees in this con, someone who you would consider had a, a finger on the pulse to some degree. And then other devotees with a completely different opinion. Um, so that's hermeneutics in action. There are people interpreting 
the same person, but from very different perspectives, coming to radically different conclusions. And, and it's interesting that at the time that was a, an open question, but it's because of those publications that we're having this conversation today. I think one of the reasons why um, there were two articles in a book called The Hare Krishna Movement by Bryant and Esker, and, and that's, that's what opened up this issue, where one of the scholars consciously looked at Prabhupada's discussions about women and about the issue of rape and about blacks, and etc. And since that book was written, and this is where he got his information, was from uh, these publications. Um, and since that publication, we haven't really responded this was a, an academic publication. There hasn't been an academic response. So we continually meet and have these kind of meetings and discussions, but there are certain issues that we have to decide on first, and that is issues of approach. So are we going to take Makunda Goswami's approach or the other approach? One approach assumes that everything Prabhupada said was absolute truth. Another approach, and interestingly shared by the devotees who associated with him, um, in, in the, the good old days, shall we say, the very, very first devotees, when you talked with Makunda Goswami and Gurudas and Shamasundar and Yamuna, these devotees, they didn't think that everything that Prabhupada said was absolute truth, or, 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 you know, he didn't mean it to be absolute truth. He told jokes. You know, he gave political opinions that were just his opinions. So, so how do we... How do we come to a conclusion about that? Because without that conclusion, it is going to be difficult. We're going to have discordant voices answering the same questions. Um, so that's, uh, and um, this has also come to the fore with edits on Srila Prabhupada's books. So Srila Prabhupada wrote his books and he wanted them to be edited to a high standard and he depended on other people to do that. So he, he wanted, he, he apologized in his first Delhi Bhagavatams that these books may not be up to scratch from a, an English language perspective, but you know, do forgive me, and, and I'm just trying to present the truth, so the truth presented is, is real, but excuse the presentation. So he wanted devotees like Hayagriva and different devotees uh, to come and edit his books expertly. He didn't expect to do that himself, and that meant they had to tamper with the language and change it. So at every stage of production, we've had changes to Prabhupada's words, Yet, when the BBT, at a point in the uh, early 90s, I think, decided to kind of renovate some of Prabhupada's books because there were glaring mistakes that were obvious, then uh, there was a big upsurge. No, you can't change Prabhupada's books. But Prabhupada was the one who introduced the change of Prabhupada's book. But now that he's passed away, now we have to create a mausoleum. Is that, do we accept that? Because they're very, very strong opinions on both sides of that argument that, you know, no, you have to change them. They have to reflect what Prabhupada actually said. It has to be in good English or French or Belgian or Belgian? It's not a language. <laughs> or other languages, Russian, etc. And we have to learn how to translate into all these languages. You know, if you want to translate into German, there's a, uh, French, there's a certain way of doing it that's acceptable at the higher academic level. If you do it at a lower level, it's just not taken seriously. We have to know these things. We have to understand the vocabulary and the words that can't be translated and how do you deal with etc. These are big issues. But even just on the English level, the books were written in English, we can't even agree on making a, a, an edit of a sentence that actually doesn't make sense in English. That how can you reconstruct that sentence that it does make sense. So this is a big, a big issue. 
Are Prabhupada's words um, all absolute truth? Are they unchangeable? So that's a one point. The second point is maybe more fundamental. Um, in the 1830s, a, a subject area developed in Germany uh, that we know as the study of religions, the academic study of religion. Now, up to that point, religion wasn't studied in a scholarly way, a detached way, that you stand back for it and you, you say, well, I'm, I, if I'm not a religious person, then how do I study this, this work? And fundamental questions were asked when scholars took that approach. So for the first time, they started to ask questions, well, who actually wrote the Bible? And then they started to investigate and found out that it's actually very difficult to ascertain. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Or was it Simon, Barbarous, you know, or Matilda or someone else? I mean, we have no idea, really. And they started, and this shook the faith of many Christians. Many people left the church. That, that coupled with developments in geology and Darwinism, boom, 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 just, you know, big body blows to how people perceived truth and received wisdom came through the Bible because it was the word of God. Now it could have been the word of some guy in, some guy in a bazaar in Haifa. <laughs> who knows who, who wrote this? That becomes very difficult. So who wrote Prabhupada's books? We're not even 50 years away, and I can ask that question and ask you to produce evidence. Who wrote Prabhupada's books? Give me evidence that actually it was Prabhupada. Where is the evidence, the documentary evidence? Prabhupada reused his tapes. He, he taped <laughs> over his tapes. <laughs> That's right. That doesn't exist. Show me the manuscripts that we can attribute directly to Prabhupada. They don't exist. Some manuscripts of the Delhi Bhagavatam exist. These are fundamental questions because in 50 years' time, when everyone who had direct contact with Prabhupada and a lot of the people who had secondary you know, just within a few years, and remember the ethos of the movement at that time, when they're gone, this becomes a relevant scholarly question that you have to produce evidence for. Where is the evidence? I was having a discussion with Jayadweta Swami. We did it over a few years because I was asking this question of the BBT, and um, Jayadweta Swami started his own little program, a uh, little investigation, and uh, they were having trouble. They, ha they were having real trouble with the nectar of instruction. They themselves were beginning to doubt that it was Prabhupada. It could have been Roy Ram. And it, and it wasn't quite clear. But this is fundamental. This is the Nectar book. Nectar Instruction? Nectar Instruction. Oh, Roy Ram? No, that was earlier. This is my... This is, my, this is, this is the BBT, the publishers, uh -huh. and they're, they're having difficulty trying to figure out the, the... You know, looking at the books, say, that's okay, that's okay. Oh, oh dear. Who, uh, where's the trail here? And, you know, so eventually he was able to get back to me and said, yes, it's okay, Prabhupada wrote it, it's all right. You know, we, we couldn't share this dilemma with anybody else, obviously, until we established that Prabhupada actually did it. But, you know, that's the book that convinced me to become a devotee. And all of a sudden it's written by Joe Bloggs in New York, some drug-crazed hippie. <laughs> you know, it's a bit of an issue. <laughs> so, so that's an issue. Um, and, and things can be done about that at this stage. But we have, we have to seriously think about it now for the future. If we want Krishna consciousness to flourish in the future, the foundation has to be crystal clear. And we have to understand what work do we have to do now so that our 
great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren have the opportunity for Krishna consciousness? It's, just, it's kind of a simple question. And what are Srila Prabhupada's influences? I mean, what are his inspirations in the book? Everyone has influences, so we can say Krishna. It's not as simple as that. It's Bhakti Siddhanta. It's uh, uh, Jiva Goswami. It's Rupa Goswami. So Vishma Chakravarti is a big one. These are things that have to be, you know, set in stone. We have to look at his books and we have to read the Goswamis and see the influences and read Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur because you'll see in his influences. Prabhupada sometimes just repeats him, but he's repeating someone else. And again, that trail has to be seen. If we were to understand, as has been said, where Prabhupada is coming from, who's he quoting, where is this, what does this statement mean and where, where has it come from so we can trace it back and explain. Otherwise, we're going to have great difficulty explaining it. We will just be speculating. And, and, and we're, we're told not to speculate. We're, we should be scholarly. We should be intelligent about this. We should do it properly out of respect for Prabhupada. Uh, because, again, otherwise someone does the scholarly work and comes out with a statement. And then some other guy doesn't do the scholarly work and comes out with another statement. And you've got two statements that may be contradictory. One of them is actually relevant and substantive, and the other one is just blah, blah. Both of them get distributed. Both of them have their influence. So we have to consider as, as a society, how do we represent Prabhupada at that kind of level? And another thing is um, the importance of history. Um, I remember being in the cathedral in Milan some years ago. We were at another um, IC conference. And uh, it's great, these IC conferences, you get to see the world. You get a day out in Venice, day out in Milan, you know, it's great. So we went to the uh, cathedral because we're devotees, that's what we do. We go to places of worship. <laughs> What's that? Milano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I was attracted to a big plaque that said all the bishops of Milan going back to 55 AD. 55 AD, right? So they could say who was the first bishop of Milan and every subsequent bishop of Milan. And I just think of, of the Dublin temple where I was kind of born, so to speak. And we can't name all the temple presidents. The Belfast temple, we have no idea. <laughs> you know, what is our history? And I'm, this is, I'm just talking about after Prabhupada. What about during that period? What is our history? What is our sense of history? Where are the materials that we have to study our history? Now, unfortunately for the planet, since the middle of the 17th century, uh, most historical resources are newspapers. And in the 18th century, this became, newspapers became more prominent. And that's where people go to find that history. That's really sad because no one takes newspapers seriously. The newspaper we read today, we don't take it seriously. But in 50 years' time, it's history. It's the only written record left. And I, I have all the newspaper articles um, from ISKCON Ireland going back to the 1970s. And in our archives in Oxford, we have all the uh, articles going back to the 1970s from ISKCON England. And if you read these articles, I don't want that to be our history. <laughs> Please. You know, cult. A cult member bites head off duck. That was, that's a headline. I'm just quoting. Cult member bites head off duck. <laughs> that's a headline. This is how crazy these things were. But that's our history. 
We're obviously a troubled organization for a long time. It wasn't. It wasn't. I don't know. Maybe it was a. No. Yeah. Who was the duck? I don't know. But so so where are the materials? Um, uh, are we keeping newsletters? Are we keeping videos? Are we keeping tapes? Whole whole archives of tapes have been thrown out. I remember ringing up um, someone about an archive in America. We were trying to grab it before it disappeared. It had been burned the week before. A whole archive of our history. Um, a devotee in Germany destroyed all the German archives. Just didn't see the point. Because we're very detached. But the actual fact is we need these resources. Because um, otherwise we will be in trouble. And oral histories. And this is what we need. This is the real need in terms of Srila Prabhupada's legacy. Oral histories have always been important. Um, and we have to take the time to record devotees on these controversial issues. So, for instance, um, if you, uh, uh, Jadarani and Yamuna and Govinda, uh, etc., all the old Prabhupada disciples, Manjuali, etc., these devotees, ask, the, ask them specific questions about Prabhupada's attitude towards women. Ask black devotees about Prabhupada's attitude towards blacks. You know, the fact is, these people are dying. Bhaktivedanta is gone. Yamuna is gone. The resources are going. The commentarial tradition. For instance, who wrote Prabhupada's books? Well, where are the people? Kushakrata, he's dead. Kopi Pranada is dead. This was a very small team, this Sanskrit team, the people who actually were with Prabhupada all the time. And, you know, they're not around anymore to give evidence. It's, it's becoming critical. So what was Prabhupada's attitude towards women? If you have oral histories of women who met Prabhupada, this is primary resource material. That's the first place you go. And you ask them specifically about these issues. What was your impression of Prabhupada on this? They'll say specific things. They'll give a general impression. But this will inform any study that has to be done. They have to study these resources. And if they're written, it's even more powerful. So they can be transcribed, obviously. But if someone writes on these issues, and maybe more importantly than the issues themselves, because we're only dealing with the issues that one scholar has picked out for us, and we constantly come back to the same ones. But more importantly, maybe the, the essential atmosphere around Prabhupada, Prabhupada's ethos. You know, what, what, were the, what, were, what was the general impression of Prabhupada? and have that down in, document, in documented form. We have some books of biographies, devotees are writing memoirs, etc., but they're not really addressing these issues. Uh, if these are our concerns, then go do an oral history project and go purposefully to devotees and ask them these questions, 16 questions every person, a two-hour interview. So that's, that could be important. And then, as has been discussed, the issue of Indian thinking, how... Indians think differently and consequently culturally there are huge differences and Indian culture is dynamic and has been dynamic it changed during Prabhupada's lifetime so which, which Indian culture did Prabhupada represent when he made the statements that he made uh, we, have to, we have to understand the context uh, very specifically and also when we talk about Indian thought there are certain philosophical assumptions that people in India make because of Indian philosophical uh, perspective that we don't make in the West. So we have to wonder, are we asking the right questions? 
the analysis that people are imposing on Prabhupada when he talks about these things, is this uh, an appropriate and fair analysis if someone is thinking in a completely different way, if their assumptions are different? So we have to look at those assumptions. Um, as Ravindra Prabhu pointed out, Prabhupada believed in monarchy, um, and this was his personal conviction, and it's, that's clear in his books. But very interestingly, he established in ISKCON a democracy. He, he, he used uh, English parliamentary process for the GBC. He was very specific about that. That's essentially a democratic process. He didn't trust that there were any Kshatriyas in ISKCON. So how, how can you govern? So he gave a democratic process. He speaks against democracy, but he uses it because it's practical. So that's quite complex. There's a series of... of uh, well, Prabhupada performed the first weddings in ISKCON. Obviously, everyone wanted their wedding to be performed by, performed by Prabhupada, but he stopped at a certain point because marriages were turning out to be problematic. The, the couples weren't staying with each other. And Prabhupada was, was uh, abhorred. He couldn't understand this at all. In his culture, his cultural perspective, this was outrageous, that you would make a vow like that to someone in front of the fire, in front of Krishna, in front of your guru, and then you wouldn't fulfill it. You wouldn't stick it out. And people wanted to get divorced. And there was a series of letters of Prabhupada saying, no, there can be no divorce. You can separate, but you cannot divorce. And then all of a sudden, Prabhupada writes, um, yes, uh, you, can, you can get divorced. What, what happened there? In the written record, that, as Ravinda Sroop says, it, it, it's become very complex. <laughs> you know? The written record contradicts itself. So Prabhupada's secretary asked him, what happened? You know, I'm writing all these letters and you're saying don't get divorced and then you're very adamant and all of a sudden you're not adamant anymore and Prabhupada said well the letter he wrote me it was obvious that he was going to get divorced he wasn't depending on my permission therefore he would have committed Guru Aparad and that's more dangerous so by allowing him to get divorced he doesn't commit Guru Aparad where is that accountable for? you can't read between the lines in the letter on that it's a completely different level of understanding, a different consciousness, a different perception of the world. You know, so how do, how do we account for Prabhupada's words in that kind of uh, perspective? And in that, we understand that Prabhupada was um, very broad-minded, as is consistent with Indian thought. Indian thought, intellectually, is very broad-minded, open to all kinds of suggestions, whereas Indian practice is tr very conservative. And in his broad-mindedness, He's sometimes liberal and sometimes conservative, depending on the circumstance. There's a very, and so this is the, the context uh, specific, specific. Yeah. It depends on time, place, and circumstance. Prabhupada says, Deshikalapatra, that's how it is applied. And we have to understand, we have to write articles on this and show that this is how it's actually applied. And then finally, what is our qualification to address the controversial statements? Who's the qualified person in this con that can actually do this, considering what the job is, the kind of research we have to do, the kind of scholarship <coughs> that has to uh, come, in, come in form? In what form should the responses take? Um, or forms? Maybe there's different, different levels of responses. Um, what level of research do we have to do? Um, and what is the place of common sense and human kindness? in our responses because we have to understand when I talk about Prabhupada's essence and Prabhupada's ethos the thing I hear repeated over and over again by Prabhupada's disciples is his kindness 
know, his, his uh, compassion, his tolerance, his love. That's what people felt from exchanges, even little exchanges with him. They had this feeling that he was really concerned about them. And that concern, does that come across in our statements? And in many of our statements, we, we are deficient in the milk of human kindness. It was Ravindas Roop one time who said, he said, we have to strive very hard to become pure devotees, and then we should become human. More advancement. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like that. In, in our ISKCON, sometimes you don't see common humanity. You know, people just... Friendship doesn't seem to be the essence. You know, the relationship doesn't seem to be the essence, where it is the essence of our theology. It's what we're all about. Yet, we don't see it in our statements. Our statements tend to be very dry and very philosophical and very um, pedantic, even dogmatic. And Prabhupada wasn't dogmatic. And so we, we actually misrepresent Prabhupada over and over again by missing the milk of human kindness, but by not uh, responding to a situation with common sense. I think it was Voltaire that said, common sense is not so common. <laughs> and you know, we, do have to, we do have to understand that. I think Prabhupada also said some devotee writing to him about the care of Tulsi Devi. Prabhupada was responding and she was asking again. He was responding again. And then he said at a certain point, he said, if, you, if it isn't so clear um, and you don't have common sense, talk to someone who does. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's kind of a, at some stage, we just you know, start, have to stop asking questions just to the common sense thing. You know, Tulsi is a plant. Give her water, right? Give her sunlight, you know. It's common sense, actually. It's not, it's not so difficult. So, and we just we create theology and philosophy all around it. Everything becomes philosophical. And sometimes it's not philosophical. Sometimes it's a human issue. Sometimes it's about suffering. And we have to deal with it on that basis and not make it so complicated and not have to refer back to scriptures because sometimes it's not about scriptures. If someone comes and sits in front of you and says they're suffering... Sometimes a hand on their shoulder, a pat on their head, you know, a cup of water is going to be more effective than any verse in the Bhagavad Gita. So how are we going to um, reflect that in the things that we write? Because in seeing some of the things that we've written in the tough ones and various other places, that's not always what we see. So there's a place for the academic approach. I'm sitting in Oxford, I suppose that would be my mantra. But, but it's not enough. Uh, for a spiritual institution. That's part of the work and that's very necessary and we've outlined the kind of research we have to do. But the heart with which we express ourselves, the, the how we do it, is actually for a spiritual organization far more important than the form with which we do it. It's how we do it. It's, it's the uh, expression of our heart has to be reflected in anything we write. And I think that was Prabhupada's genius. That's how he communicated so effectively to us. He, he did it through his concern, his genuine concern to help us. And he, he strove so hard to make his writing comprehensible and easy to imbibe the philosophy. And he succeeded wonderfully as a communicator. Absolute genius. Absolute genius. And it, you can see other Gaudiamat writing and it's absolutely incomprehensible. It's all m metaphor, it's flowery words. It's copying the writing of the Goswamis in Sanskrit, and in Sanskrit that works lovely, in a lovely way, but in English it just doesn't come out. The, the message gets lost in the flowery presentation. Prabhupada stripped all that clear. It's very difficult to do. You have to have really digested your subject 
to express it clearly and succinctly and plainly. And he did that absolutely brilliantly. Real genius as a communicator. But to me, that came from his heart, out of his concern. His genuine concern for people shines through, and that has to shine through in everything that we do as well. Thank you very much.